welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all the people at the table. I'm one of your hosts, DM Neil, aka Jote Maniac. And I'm your other host, Dungeon Master Mitch. And today, we're going to talk about something near and dear to my heart that took up much of my childhood, and we have a special guest so I will tell you those those pieces of information in that order, and we're going to talk the about... The suspense is killing me! Ah, we're going back to our console to campaign series, and we're going to talk about Zelda Ocarina of Time, which in hindsight you probably read as the title of this episode. And our guest is longtime friend of the show, supporter of the show, all-around great human being, and it's Jared Arteche. And we, yeah, we talk all about Zelda Ocarina of Time. Dude, you really were excited about this because during our recording time, you held up the N64 game with the box that you have. Which with is, the collector's edition yes, box. which the I golden re- holographic. Yes. Yeah, we all know what we're talking about. <laughs> if you love this game, you know it. Phenomenal. We'll make sure to post that when the episode goes live. But speaking of, I've got two things to mention. First of all, you may know Jared already. You may have heard his voice on our other show, Geek Wars. If you haven't checked out Geek Wars yet, please do so. It's fantastically fun. And if you are a geek of any realm, you will enjoy the trivia. Play along as our contestants like Jared do in that show. And secondly... As we said, this is our second console to campaign episode. And so we are throwing it back to you as our Patreon Dragons on our Patreon feed to vote for our next one. And the vote will be between God of War, the new one, which almost won this time, Final Fantasy VII, because it's back, we've got to talk about it, and then Turok, because who doesn't like hunting dinosaurs? But before that, we have an Apple podcast review, and it comes from sub to me on YT. And they entitled it Best D&D Podcast for Narrative Inspiration. Five stars. There isn't any reason why you shouldn't listen. For players, it's a wellspring of knowledge you can use to metagame your way out of any situation. (laughs) And for DMs, having a wellspring of brilliant ideas to make any RPG shine with narrative glory and the holiest of narrative progression, character development. Not really that, but still. Cast suggestion. Listen to this podcast. (laughs) So thank you, Sub to Me on YT. Uh, I love that review. That was a fantastic review. Well, Neil, it is time. Let's head to the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meats? Looks like meat back on the menu, boys. Well, for this episode of The Meat, I want to introduce you to first-time member on the Dungeon Master's block. He is one of our cosmic Patreon dragons, You may have heard him on DMnastics before. You may have even heard him on Geek Wars before. Maybe you've even, like we have, met him at a catacon. He is uh, a listener to the show, but even more importantly, a personal friend of mine and Neil's. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Block, Jared Arteche. Hello. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm beginning my takeover now, so... You know, just, just, I'm just going (laughs) to ease my way in now, and then slowly you're just going to hear my voice start Borg merging. Everyone wants to do that, but nobody... I know, I was going to say, Neil, everybody's making those jokes these days. I think that we need to start building up... Yeah, our current defense is that we do the editing, so... (laughs) (laughs) That's true, that's true. Nobody wants that job. We don't even want that job. Well, anyway, Jared, thank you so much for joining us. It's awesome to have you here on the show. Yes, but Jared, you know what is coming, and it is none other than a surprise question. And since you have fed us enough surprise questions over the years, I thought it would be apt if I made up the surprise question. And tied to the topic at hand, I will ask you, which city in Hyrule would you want to live and why? Ooh, okay, um... So, the only one that I would think of that doesn't have terrible fates, like, at some point (laughs) or another, 
uh, would be uh, Hateno Village from Breath of the Wild. Okay, I like it. Like that one's just cozy, yeah. you know. Has a very nice like homey feel. Castle Town's yeah. nice, but you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you get it ruined most of the time. <laughs> Kakariko has terrible monsters under it. Cozy is a good thing to aim for. That's yeah, for as, sure. as long as someone doesn't get too crazy on a chicken and then you're just completely overrun. But <laughs> <laughs> Right, that's true. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you, Neil, for that question. And thank you, Jared, for answering it. <laughs> <laughs> as Neil said, this is really the perfect episode uh, for Jared to join us on. Jared, uh, you, you like video games a little bit. <laughs> just, just, a little uh, bit. just a little you bit. Know. So... For our second Council to Campaign episode, we gave you, the Patreon Dragons, um, a chance to vote, uh, and you voted to talk about Zelda Ocarina of Time. Uh, first of all, Jared, did you vote for Zelda? What were the options? Because I think God of War. It was God of War. Uh, the new God, God of War, War is okay, my so favorite whole... video game in a long <laughs> oh, time. Oh, man, me too. Me yeah. too. That is my but favorite video game of all time. Zelda's... It was hard for me to reach that decision because like, it is newer. And it's hard to say something's your favorite when it's like, you know, only a couple years old, I'm, but still. I'm all about that story gameplay balance, man. Oh, that it's... game just. Mwah, mm. Yeah, we could go on for yeah. hours. But, but it's not that game. Yeah. No, Zelda, Zelda still Zelda. holds yeah. a, a special place in my heart. Yeah. Good. Way. Please don't, it's, because yeah, I would have no. absolutely nothing to say this entire time. <laughs> so, so unlike the last episode where Neil had never played the video game, was experiencing it through. Uh, new eyes all three of us have played ocarina of time maybe not so recently but we want to talk about it uh, from the perspective of inspiration for a DD game and one thing that uh, is true with many games but especially for this game is there's so much here to talk about that we could we could do like literally probably start a whole podcast on on this right but jared why don't we start off if somebody out there is unfamiliar with Ocarina of Time. Uh, they'd never played Ocarina of Time. They'd never played any Zelda games. And you just had to sit down and say, all right, listen, I'm going to tell you about this game. What would you tell them Zelda Ocarina of Time is? Tell them a little bit about that game. I would say that, I mean, it's sort of the quintessential adventure game experience. You know, you you play a character with a past that you aren't too familiar with, uh, starting off in a small, cozy, you know, village home and get your call to adventure through kind of magical means and set off into the big open and scary world. Everything's kind of nice in the daytime. And then suddenly in the nighttime, there's skeleton monsters all over the first time that happened. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's really a game about a world unfolding in front of you, you know, as you play the world. And then right when you think you've probably beaten the game where a lot of games were shorter when that was when that originally came out, uh, all of a sudden the game thrusts you seven years in the future and everything's even worse than it was before. And you're an adult now. And yeah, yeah, yeah. there's this big tonal shift for sure. You could almost say that, like, that first part of the game, it's, like, it's very kid-friendly feel, right? Um, And then you go to the future, and, like, I remember playing this when I was pretty young, and I remember that first time that I went into the future, and you walk out of the temple into the the city you're in, and there are all the, I believe they're called Redeads. Yeah, Yeah, walking around, and I think I was a little bit, a little scared. Like I was like, I wasn't prepared for this level of creepy. The whole really nice, like happy castle town vibe with the hyped up music and everything. And suddenly you walk out and there's like purple death smoke around the mountain in the background and zombies that, yeah, it, it was, I'll be honest. I think my first reaction, the first time I was playing as, as a younger uh, kid was, I think I walked out, I saw the re-deads, I went back in the temple and I put the sword back in. And I was like, nope. <laughs> nope, I don't want to go there right yeah. now. Oh, yeah. And I mean, like, it's it's almost like a, a coming of age story in itself. Like, it, just really in the most literal terms of, of a character that kind of has, uh, you know, a pretty friendly, despite fighting monsters, all things considered, a pretty friendly childhood. And 
you know, the world suddenly becomes different for him. Yeah, he's he's even the underdog because I remember you you um, are walking around your own village and there's a, there's in particular one elf that kind of picks oh. on you because you're not the tough guy and he's the tough that guy jerk. and and mm. your character like a lot of games I feel like back in this time period. It's it's not like you're actually engaging in speech with them. You're kind of just listening to what they say. So it even gives you that feel of an underdog because you're not selecting choices of like fighting back through speech or anything. You kind of just take it. Yeah, and only until you've done something to prove by getting the shield that yep. okay, well maybe I will let you out, and then just blocking your way right in front of the bridge. He's, yeah, he's still not even yeah. happy about it. Mido. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that kind of carries throughout the game. I think that you meet plenty of people who like refer to you as kid. Cause especially like at the beginning of the game, that's exactly what you are. Uh, and just this sense of, yeah, like you start off feeling kind of like this, this little pipsqueak in a big, bigger world. And you, you do, you progress to feeling yeah. like the hero. I mean, even then, like, you know, and people look at your character, like a kid, he's not allowed in so many places. Like you have to get certain permissions to get places. And then you kind of got to earn your way up. And then, you know, in the future, everything's yeah. terrible. Yeah. Even with weapons, you start off with your little dinky wooden sword, and you you don't yeah you don't start off with a real sword or a real shield like that stuff you need to work towards. Well, even I, the one that I think even stands out more as that happening is when you try and go get Epona, and like just mm. how, I mean that you're laughed at that you would even try and do anything like that, and then you just. I mean, kind of steal the horse. Let's be honest. Like, like you want it, but you also just jumped the fence and just kind of ran away with it. But yeah, it's fine. It worked out. Little kid shenanigans. It's all right. It's it's ah stole a horse. Whatever. All right. So like that Zelda Ocarina of Time. I think that probably most of our listeners, if not have played and loved this game, uh, are somewhat familiar with it. So let's start diving into some of the nittier and grittier discussion. Let's start pulling elements from this game uh specifically let's talk about let's let's hold off maybe on the the inspiration that we can draw from the story itself let's talk about the world whether that is the land itself or monsters or items what are things in this game that really stick out to you as this would be amazing inspiration to pull from and bring into a D&D game what do you guys think yeah, I mean, the first thing I think of with Zelda at any point is is the creatures, the monsters, and mm. the friendly and unfriendly. Like, I, I mean, you uh, the first the, the first ones that always come to mind are the Gorons. Like, yep, yeah, just these big kind of lumbering, friendly but a little you know closed off and tribal, just a little bit dopey, you know, <laughs> like and yet like strong yeah. and big and and tough yeah and big in literally whatever random sense of big you think of there's a goron of that size too like. oh and that's a you know this came up uh with uh, my top 10 episode this idea but i'm almost wondering now are are gorons like goldfish do they grow depending on how big of a like a room that they have to, you know, because oh, there's cert- there is that one that's just massive. Bigger in, you got to go get his sword. Bigger in, yeah, mm-hmm. there you go. Go on that fetch quest. And he and he doesn't live in the village; he lives outside. So maybe that speaks true to that Goron uh, physiology. Then you have the one that makes the giant's knife. That's like you go around the side, bomb the wall, oh, and man. his whole head is just like right there uh-huh. filling the cave. Yeah, it's it's funny. I had I had them down as something I wanted to absolutely talk about. And I like in thinking about taking Gorons and bringing them into D&D, uh, I immediately thought of the D&D monster, the Galeb Dor, and I thought what if you took the the Goron society and their culture um, and you brought it into this this monster that has like one page dedicated to it in the monster manual. There's not a lot about it. It's this like big creature that looks like it's made out of stone. And But I was like, this is perfect for a Goron. And you could pull that society, you could pull that culture, create it for the Galeb door, and I think it would work really well. I love the idea of taking the essence inside of Ocarina of Time and adding it to the stats of something else because it's mm-hmm. already written and designed by people 
in D&D to be an official release. Because let's be honest, if you spend any time on the internet, you can definitely find 5th edition for basically anything that we're going to talk about. But the issue with that is that it is a homebrew thing. You would have to take that as you would and then test it out and hope it works. Um, But taking the idea and then just putting them over the top of something else, I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Jared hit the nail on the head. Somehow, Ocarina of Time and... For the most part, most Zelda games, you have almost an alien world, yet it's done in a way and the cultures are there that it feels okay. Like the, for the most part, Link is human enough and the people he interacts with are human enough, but also you have the Gorons and that seems okay. That seems totally fine. Or then you go over here and it's the Zora and you have an entire... Yeah, you have an entire race of fish people that, again, also seems like it just belongs. So I think that's one of the really cool things in trying to figure out how to do that same thing in in your game of having something that's totally foreign, but also making it feel like it totally belongs in your world. Yeah, the whole the whole world of Hyrule that you experience in Ocarina of Time, I feel like is great inspiration, even just the way that the world is divided. You have these these sections of the world uh, like the mountain that the Gor- Gorons live on, that it's like, this is like where we see earth elements like all taking place and we have fire and you have all these magical woods that are bringing about uh, these forest themes. You have the this river where the Zora live and uh, a, a giant lake um, as well. It, it really has every place like split up with that big plain in the middle being the center of it all it has this kind of fantasy division it's kind of the quintessential fantasy game the other one that always comes to mind right now is the skulltellas the the spider boys well yeah and it's such an interesting interaction it almost feels like a way that you could uh like wholesale pull that interaction and that back and forth of needing to give those to get things as oh, the like gold the way skull that it, tellers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. And then um where you, you kill a certain number and then you get these different things that like it feels so much like a warlock patron mm. kind of vibe a that it side it'd be, quest kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But then it's like you could you yeah, exactly. You have the main quest, but even if you had like a warlock in your party, but they need to do these certain things to pay back that patron and get things from them. I feel like that's a great a great element to pull upon for a side quest in your game because if you're just moving uh, from place to place on the main quest, but if it is like an enemy that needs to be defeated and something needs to be collected from that enemy, and you place like one of the or two of those enemies within each quest that you're on for that one character that's trying to collect those tokens or or whether it's a bone from a creature or whatever it is, that's a fantastic side quest that doesn't really divert from the attention of the main quest if these creatures are just kind of all over the world, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the, the the players knowing something's a little off the beaten path is gonna... Even if they aren't, like, consciously going after something like that... Uh, I know the way that I play a game and the way that a lot of my players act is if they if they have any inkling that there is like something extra to be gained by just oh that looks like the right way let's go the other way <laughs> you know it 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 creates that uh that really ingrained desire to explore also this is a total aside but I was trying to double check like all the things you could get from the gold skull tell us i had completely forgotten about this ingenious marketing tool where you get the stone of agony and you have to have an n64 rumble pack installed and the item in game the the in-game item looks like a rumble pack and then when you were close to a hidden object the rumble pack would go off and that would be the only indication that you were close to it well played. Well played. Yeah. Take your take your greatest game and literally <laughs> put an, an, a mechanic dependent on purchasing another item. Nintendo, not messing around. There was a time when we would spend, what, 30-something dollars to add something to our controllers to make uh-huh. it shake? Yep. And that was, like, sought after. That was like, <laughs> oh, oh yeah, my the gosh, this pack. is amazing. I need this. Why did we need it? I don't oh, know. Look, 
try telling me that I was the kid with the Dreamcast with the VMU <laughs> memory card with the where you with the Chow Garden that you would put them on. Oh so, man, like, memory cards. Yeah. All right, the, I I want to talk about a, a couple uh, elements concerning some characters from this game. First off, something that was definitely a question in uh, Geek Wars season two, I believe. Maybe I don't even know. Maybe Jared, you even had this question thrown at you guys. But Kapora Gabora, Kapora the, Gabora, uh, yeah, yeah, the owl, yeah. Um, that was certainly a question in Geek Wars. But uh, I loved this owl as a kid. I still love this owl. I, I'm this, sorry like, about your wrong opinion on the. <laughs> you don't like this owl on the. I'm testing if you're paying attention, and then he like asked the question like. Do you need to hear that oh. again? And then the oh, yes or no okay. shows That's up terrible. like you're spamming the B button. That's he terrible. says it all over again. You're right. That is terrible. <laughs> yeah. I personally and I hold that against failed him. for that so many times. But the essence <laughs> of this this old wise owl as sort that. of this guide, I really like that. I don't know. I've always really liked whether you're taking uh, like beast folk or like an animal and giving it the the element of being able to speak. I've always really enjoyed that in fantasy worlds. And to me as a kid running into that owl for the first time, I don't think the first time I played, I did spam that button. Yeah, actually cared what he had to say. Playthroughs running through, I made that fatal mistake (laughs) and it is frustrating. And anybody out there who's, who's done that knows that frustration, Uh. but uh, the, but the character itself, really i think would be an awesome inspiration to pull upon for some sort of animal guide to your journey so the trope of the wise owl animal guide uh i mean that's i mean that's a classic at this point i mean i i think that um i mean my i to the point where i actually uh i actually admittedly abused my group of players with it once With their natural intrinsic trust of such a character that betrayed them. <laughs> because people see the wise owl and they're like, and, uh, you know. They most, immediately want like, to trust oh, it. Oh, Kapora Gabora, Yeah, great. He's here to, and you know, they'll make the jokes about spamming the A button. I'll be like, yep. ha ha ha. You know, go get the thing for him. He's a lich. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way to turn it on its oh, head though yeah awesome. you're right you're right if i was playing i don't think it matters what character i'm playing i want to trust the wise owl that's talking to me especially if the dm's doing like an owl voice and hooing every couple of seconds <laughs> oh, like yes. i'm in i'm like i trust this guy with my life well, yeah, and i mean there's certain levels to there be more to kapora gabora than even the game says like there's you know, there's certain fan theories that hold a lot of weight that he ends up being the Sage of Light. Um, hmm. What is the name of the actual Sage? I can't remember. But he has, like, the Sage of Light has, like, the same facial hair that matches the owl. And every other Sage shows up during Link's childhood and then is, you know, gone by adulthood. And the, the owl doesn't show up during his adulthood. So, like, there's this certain amount, like, is this owl actually, you know, this person in disguise? Uh, that, I mean, even, even, uh, even as a Raru, that's his name. Oh, no, it looks like it was actually confirmed at some point. Huh. Oh. Unless the, yep. the I mean, the, the wiki Also known as Kapora Gabora. But like you had mentioned, like, that's the Gandalf. I mean, it's a trope done well. I mean, and they're all different, and Kapora Gabora definitely... Uh, does wax poetic sometimes, but I, I mean, I loved, they're just literally swoop in, do his thing. And then off it goes. It's got other, other things to deal with. Maybe he's speaking to other heroes who are running around trying to save Hyrule. He does not have all his eggs in one basket. He's (laughs) Ah, really hedging his (laughs) bet. Yeah. Just just hedging his bets with a bunch of different heroes. (laughs) Oh, you're the chosen one. Like <laughs> you are the chosen just one. you the fifth one today. <laughs> Don't go in that cave. We lost four <laughs> chosen ones this week. <laughs> I thought you said I was the chosen one, Kibor. Just chosen by me five minutes ago. <laughs> well, yeah, you are the chosen one. The other, the other one died. Yeah, you. I'm right about. What about what about Ganondorf? Let's talk about him as like uh, inspiration for a big bad villain. What do you guys think? 
I mean, like, uh, the, this, he is one of the, in video game villains, there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of, oh, he's the evil guy, like, he's real bad, he's scary, but, like, I, I think Ganondorf is one of the ones where they did it right without, like, really trying to, because there's a lot to be said about a sympathetic villain, um, but sometimes, uh, sometimes, you know, it's almost refreshing to have a villain that is just evil and yeah. scary and you want to stop him because he's evil yeah. and scary. And he might have interesting motivations, like Wind Waker kind of explored on it a little bit. But when you get down to it, his true backstory is that he's literally like the the antithesis of everything that is good in the world reincarnated. And yet at the same time, he's kind of the whole package as far as like big bad evil guy right in fact like you i remember the i think it's the first time you experience him in ocarina of time is through the window with yep. princess zelda and like you see eyes. him like yeah, yeah you see him like kneeling like because he's still he's charismatic still he's able to play the political game to gain power and like he's 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 magical although he can still wield a sword and he can fight. He looks, he looks like he's a strong guy physically. He's yeah. He's kind of that whole package. And then you get to the end and there's that amazing battle where he turns into Ganon, which I think is great inspiration for the battle with uh, uh, your big bad villain at the end, right? Is that you fight the villain and then there's more. Oh yeah. And I mean, like you said, he, he hits all, he checks all the, like everything you look for in like cool, cool villains for your characters. He has, he has power that is equal to that. He has power that puts him in equal to the chosen one and that he has the Triforce while Link also has the Triforce, like where they each have a piece. And I mean, his represents his raw power. So, I mean, he's, he's a character who has the ability, who's a, he's humanoid, just like you. He has the same kind of divine powers, just like you. He has the ability to kind of manipulate and play politics in the same kind of way that Link does just, you know, for, for good, not evil throughout Ocarina of Time. I mean, it really, it just, especially the fact that, like, theoretically, Zelda would have loved to be able to do something about it, but you can't because they had no proof about him. I mean, having a villain like that where you can introduce him to the players very quickly and you can telegraph how evil he is to them because they understand tropes, but you can introduce them to him in the middle of a castle court and they can't do anything about it. Exactly, yeah. Whereas Link has to prove himself. Ganondorf is walking around and people are totally respecting him. Uh, asking for advice he's got he's got nothing to prove it's up to you as the heroes to prove that there's something nefarious going on yeah and that two-stage bass bass that two-stage boss battle is perfect yes i think yeah i have a whole like rabbit trail of like how to do that from like a design perspective having the first part be strong enough then my thought would be to give them that moment of rest and then kick it off, but then kind of retroactively give them a short rest, giving some mechanical essence of like getting some of their stuff back because then having the next fight possibly be even more or more brutal. Cause like you're saying, I feel like you can definitely have two very, it's two very different versions of the fight. I mean, it's one where it's, yeah, like you said, it's dexterous, it's oh, yeah. ping pong, <laughs> and then it's just beast. Well, yeah, and I mean, like, the thing is, it's like, whenever I'm kind of designing what those big bombastic final encounters are, a lot of times it is that choice of, like, do you want the giant monster that the players might not even know if they can beat? Or do you want the guy that's about the same size as the players and somehow mm-hmm. is just, like, an equal to all of them combined and just blocking attacks and shrugging everything off. And, and and, I mean, you really have both of that with Ganon. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, even in the game, they make you think that you won the fight. You're escaping the castle. It's like, Oh, the whole castle is going down. This is it. This is the final chase, you know? And, and he comes out of the rubble as, as giant beast Ganon. 
Now, what about what about the real boss of the game, the real true villain? Uh, which, of course, I'm speaking of Dark Link. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> just get a just get a hammer. I, it's fine. Right, get the hammer or the broken bigger on or the broken uh, giant's knife. True. Yep. Um, One of the two, and then you're fine. I mean, th- thematically, the whole idea of like the 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 shadow fight is always something really cool. Like, I I don't think um, no one is uh, excited to fight something, especially like when you have one of those power gamers or one of those uh, or one of those people that you've seen kind of employ some really you know you uh, we all have those players that employ those really creative strategies with what they have, and you're like, I never would have thought of them doing that, but now it's like, well, thanks for the idea. Yeah, I mean, I've I've done that where I've had the players like the the shadows come up and they all turn and like look at their power at the one who's a little more power gamer than the rest, and they all just immediately <laughs> like get him first. It, we're gonna have so much trouble even hitting him. Yep, Let's absolutely. just. I think I would individualize it though in that scenario. Um, I'm trying. It's a. Uh, it makes me think of also a world of warcraft mechanic where at one point during a big boss fight everyone like separates into their own section and basically you as soon as you defeat your shadow self you're then placed with with someone else in their shadow self and eventually all the shadow selves are defeated oh, and you so go everybody back goes through like you a go, gauntlet of yeah and you go yeah. back to defeating the boss so there's one so there's one that usually can't do in a World of Warcraft scenario and a D&D scenario, then now that we're talking about it, there you might have a cleric who's very heal heavy. So they don't really have any way to kill themselves in that shadow form. So they basically just have to survive long enough for the rest of the party to show up to be able to do that for them. Well, and then tack on what we were talking about with, with Ganon's, like... Uh, inspiration there and you could have it be you know you have four pcs five pcs whatever and they're fighting their individuals but then it leads up to this great shadow beast that comes together that is the dark antithesis of all of the players together and it's this large monster that has all of the powers and abilities that they all have to fight together that would be You'd be like, you'd get through the, the the shadow creatures of yourself, and you'd be like, "Dang, that sucked!" And then there'd be a giant monster that is all of them together. Terrifying. I, I mean, at that point, I'm I'm almost thinking like you would even want to add a third phase of that fight where you know if you're gonna pit every player against himself. I mean, obviously, like there's the idea maybe like shifting it so every player is battling a different shadow player, but then you get, you end up situations like, you know, where the cleric is trying to fight someone who they'll never be able to kill. Um, but in my mind, it's almost like a three stage fight. Like everyone fights their own shadow self. Then it turns into a party versus party where a lot of those, you know, dynamics where, you know, all you, when, when God forbid you let the you let the tank throw the rogue at the enemies <laughs> because that's what they always ask to do. The halfling rogue has some weird thing about being thrown Absolutely. by the big guy. And then suddenly there's a shadow halfling rogue being thrown at them. <laughs> I think it's a, a really cool moment that you can flip stuff back on the on the players that they've been kind of a little bit of like personal dm vindication revenge on the players um and then you know you beat all of them and you think it's over and they're all just inky black pools that suddenly then coalesce into a big you know monster terrifying if we're thinking of characters as well the my my favorite character in every zelda game that she shows up in is impa because there is so much to that character and so little of it gets explored. And it's like, you clearly have such an interesting life and yet we never get to see like any of the coolest moments mm-hmm. like this ancient protect ancient order that protects the Royal family that did like all this stuff in the past, apparently. And like, I mean, Impa, you know how she, she's the one who spirits Zelda out of the castle when Ganondorf yep. takes over. And it's just like, you have this whole, cool like secret ninja order character and yep. you see a lot of like what they can do in Sheik, but apparently impa would have been the one that trained Sheik in everything like 
and one of those, I mean, having a character, especially if we're talking about a theoretical campaign with a with a Ganondorf-like character that is amassing power in the world and, you know, polit- you know, making political movements and you can't really do anything outwardly to him because of the power that he wields. Uh, I mean, a character that, you know, is just a member of the court that's secretly this amazing secret ninja has a lot of potential i don't know Ed, if you guys yeah i mean i i i kind of am thinking about her in the sense of bringing her as inspiration just like uh kapora gabora as a sort of guide to the players um who i think is is perfect shrouded in mystery not uh oh yeah like seeing I... that they're powerful but yeah, not not knowing everything about yeah. them. Like I want to know everything about them. I recognize the yeah. storytelling device. It's oh, way yeah. <laughs> cooler that we don't. Yeah. But it's just like I'm like, where did you like? Where'd you learn this stuff? Mm-hmm. Are there others like you? Like, yeah, what is your yeah. story? But then, like you said, I don't want to know everything because it, it'll take away from the fact that I don't know everything. Like I constantly want to know more, but not get the information. Well, but definitely one of the coolest characters because. She's so good at anything she's doing and then just literally just rides off and that that's it. That that's what you see. All right. One more, one more thing to discuss that we need to discuss before we move on to discussing the, the elements of story for inspiration. Uh, we got to talk about with the world building in Ocarina of time, the temples throughout the game uh, because the temples uh, that link has to go through are, in my opinion, some of the greatest inspiration for dungeon crawls that you can find in a video game. When I'm talking about designing dungeons, the two things I think of, I think of Zelda, and Mm. believe it or not, I I also tell people to look at the Metroid Prime series. Mm. But, I mean, yeah, what great examples of both building dungeons around of building dungeons around themes yep. that feel like a cohesive experience and not just like a bunch of rooms smacked together. Absolutely. Um, you know, building dungeons that actually, you know, you aren't just going through li- a linear structure. You're kind of exploring it and figuring it out and a little bit of backtracking, but discovering yep. new things when you backtrack, like it's, it's a masterclass in, good ways to build a dungeon on tabletop. And I don't, I, I, again, I played this game when I was younger, but what I do remember of specifically the water temple, which is where you fight dark link is it being challenging. I remember like having, having a a tough go at some of these temples playing uh, and enjoying it. Like that was, I feel like this may have been one of the first times as, a younger gamer that I really was given this, this difficult challenge. And, and now I'm playing dark souls and going, <laughs> man, I love the challenge. Right. But like when I was younger, this was one of the first times that I was like, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. This is difficult. Yeah. I mean, so much of the time, like, and obviously, you know, the, the time you put into building a dungeon is, is only the time that you can have, you know, no, we aren't all, uh, we don't, you know, I don't think this is a full-time, the only full-time job that any of us are yeah. doing in dungeon mastering. But it's it's one of those things where it's like when you can, when you're able to put in the time to make a dungeon like that, where it's not just the players going, all right, we did this room. What's the next room we haven't gone into yet? Like where they just have the map and they're like, well, there's a door we haven't kicked down yet. Let's check out that one. Mm-hmm. Which you know it it turns it can turn into a lot even when you're even when you're very much trying not to make it that it's it it's difficult sometimes to create that aspect but I I mean really like the way you know the the controlling the the explore the controlled exploration of things like specific keys and items mm-hmm. that unlock stuff because I mean even a lock even door outfits here. right oh yeah Link has yep. to wear certain outfits for certain dungeons or he's doomed to fail yep can't swim or like you said with the water temple the the big thing was like do you have the blue tunic mm-hmm. do you have the weighted boots do you which water level is it at now which water level do i need it to be at next which and the back and forth of that and the biggest thing for me jared you kind of hit on it is that not only is it not just 
not linear, it's not two dimensional. And so like replaying through Ocarina of Time definitely can help you add a third dimension to your dungeons. And I, I know I'm I'm one who doesn't do that as much as I would like because every time you see your dungeon, it's on a 2D piece of paper. Yeah, and it is very it, hard when, to when you draw the map, it's you're you're drawing it on a graph bit is graph paper and doing things like that. So adding that third dimension um, is really I think is a really good way to pull from Ocarina of Time. Three dimensional dungeons gonna plug Tailspire. It's not I have nothing to do with it, but man, that's a cool tool where mm, you can mm-hmm. build where you can build dungeons with that. Like I mean, and I believe it's actually the beta's dropping uh in probably this month i mean it'll probably be dropped by the time this maybe by the time this episode drops but i mean like it just if you're uh, not to not to tangent off but if you're looking to build stuff and build like three-dimensional dungeons and get out of thinking about like that 2d space such a cool such a cool Mm. tool yep awesome well, let's jump into the story. Uh, well, let's use the remainder of our time to talk about the story of Zelda Ocarina of Time and what inspires us for a D&D campaign. So, even from the beginning, directly from the instruction booklet, I shall read. <laughs> before life began, before the world had formed, three golden goddesses descended upon the chaotic land of Hyrule. They were Din the goddess of power, Nehru, the goddess of wisdom, and Feyror, the goddess of courage. Yeah, I think it's just a really interesting origin story. And then also having that essence be folded into the Triforce. And so I'm a huge fan of how they set up the world itself because those are the main deities. And then you have lesser, potentially what people could consider as lesser gods as well. So even from a pantheon perspective i really like the way that hyrule and ocarina of time is set up i I, yeah i mean if we're you know if we're talking deities i mean the the idea behind all these influences of din furor and nehru i mean it's you can see it in so many things and the cultures that are influenced by them and like little things like designs of like the different goddesses symbols are like in different cultures uh, like in their architecture and stuff, like little details that really add to like understanding the world better as a whole and it feeling more like, oh yeah, the you know these gods that have a hand. And then the fact that they aren't there, like a lot of these other smaller powerful things are, like certain creatures that are kind of like lesser deities to different cultures. You have three gods that more or less made a thing. And like made, uh, I mean, made a pretty problematic thing of the Triforce yep. that everybody wants, and then just pieced out. Like, where should we put it? Over there looks good, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> all right, make <laughs> need some stones to get it. Like, yeah. yep. which theoretically, you know, I mean, in that that in itself is a neat idea, in that you needed the 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 Kokiri stone, the Goron stone. Mm-hmm. I forget if they yeah. have more specific names or like the four stone mm-hmm. and stuff. But, like, you needed these three big cultures. They're, they're like, symbols to mm-hmm. all be presented. So, I mean, theoretically, the Triforce should have only been something that was attainable at a time of, you know, peace and prosperity. If all these yep. cultures could come together and present their stones to the temple. And speaking about using the Triforce as inspiration, one of the things that I love about this game is spoiler alerts uh the ending when you defeat ganon he gets thrown into i believe it's called the shadow realm but he still has the triforce of power and he says like i'm gonna i'm gonna break out i'm gonna come i'm gonna rule the world uh this is not the end of me and like to me i go like that's a that's great inspiration for a campaign ending of like, yeah, you won, you defeated the evil, you defeated the evil one. Uh, they still have this powerful item, even where you sent them, which even may be to death. They brought it with them to the underworld. Who knows? Uh, but like this looming presence of, yes, this is a victorious day. This is good. This is happy. Uh, but I, like, I almost imagine you can end your campaign with a post credit scene, right? Where you, <laughs> you see the evil character and maybe you have like this little description where you say thousands of years in the future. And then that's something you could pick up 
in your world with new characters somewhat down the line of this returning evil because they still have this powerful item. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, what does it mean that Ganon still has the Triforce of Power? Like, mm-hmm. is that by design, by the god, by the goddesses who made it? Mm. Like, Was it, it made for him? Yeah. Like, I mean, you would think that if they were so serious about it being protected, that it wouldn't be made in a way that someone evil would be able to just be like, no, nah, this, it's mine now. Don't worry about it. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't take it from me. Good luck trying. Like, it's not going to happen. Kill me. I'll still have it. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's this, it's this, like, almost you could build in this theology in your world of, and this, like, thought process of morality that, yes, evil is going to rise and evil is almost meant to rise. However, good is always meant to rise up and meet it. And yeah, I, I, I love that idea for a fantasy world that's fantastic and now my brain keeps uh, <laughs> this is not that helpful and maybe it is helpful so i'll say it anyways but now all my brain can think about is like i don't even want to say fan fiction but like the idea of like what if it's another 10 years 15 years because that's one thing you don't really get with zelda games is like a truly older link um for the most part he's, he's either young or not as young you're you're imagining like white hair white beard link <laughs> well i'm just thinking because scarred and if Ga- in if playing off of ocarina of time if ganon still has the the power then link still has some too and so then like these people are holding on to these bits of power until is there a way that link could choose to pass that on to someone is it only when he would die and so then ganon showing up like like i said like 15 years later and link's just like older but ready like totally ready for it because that's the other thing part of that story is like, there's like you believe ganon like he's gonna come back he has the stone of power like it's gonna happen so then preparing for that and being ready for when he does so let's uh let's wrap this up by talking about uh in my opinion one of the most compelling elements of the story is we talked about a little bit at the beginning but that time jump uh using that as an element uh in a D campaign where your playable characters shift through time to a different period of time. If we're taking from Ocarina of Time, we're talking much darker. The world is in the grip of evil, but uh, what is it that you like? What is it that inspires you? And what ideas come from uh, that element of this story that you would want to bring into a D&D campaign? So I, ju- I just wanted like two seconds to mechanically touch on that because it's designed beautifully for the way that it is. It's it's not free time travel because a lot of people like me wince at the idea of trying to figure out time travel and timelines <laughs> in a campaign, especially with chaotic players already. Like yes. when you have it's two timelines that are running along the same line and they're running just forward in time. Like you always go seven years back. Every time you go back, every time you go forward, you go seven years forward. So you, you're never crossing over your own timeline. You know, it's always, you are, it's along these same lines. So everything you do in the past is still there, uh, and goes into the future. And then everything you do in the future stays in the future. And I mean, it just, it allows for so many, like, oh, we, this thing could be changed in the past, so let's change it in the past and then come back to the future and see what changed. It, it leads so well to that as a functional mechanic in a game that won't break everything. Hmm. Yeah, be- because like you said, you're, you're never dealing with... And whatever rules you have in regards to time travel, no matter how ridiculous, no matter how far-fetched, no matter how simple, that's all you got to do is follow those rules that's it like once you establish them you have to follow them no matter what media you're in especially in a D game but yes i do love the idea you can never cross over with yourself in this method you are either here or you are there and also that added element of in that space you are gone and so then if what happens because your players are not there that that which obviously things go very sideways in ocarina of time <laughs> I think I love, I think I really just love the idea of playing a campaign where the characters start off as children uh, and kind of that, like taking that element we talked about of like, they don't 
necessarily feel like the heroes and people don't look at them like the heroes because they're kids. Uh, but to run around and give them some sort of adventure as kids, but then to shoot them forward in time where they are, they are adults and they could be seen as the heroes and, but yeah, just like, and maybe, maybe you mechanically, you have some sort of different element to that, making them less powerful as uh, their children selves and then bringing them forth into the future where like you grant them even more powerful uh, aspects to them. But I love that element of role-playing from like, we were children. Now we are adults, especially if it's talking about like this darker world, how you react to that. I, yeah. And I mean, I, I love the whole, I mean, obviously uh, when I say springing stuff on your players, it depends on your group and how receptive yeah. they would be to total like shifts in what you tell them is going to be. That's a, thing. a huge shift in role playing, but, right? It's yeah. like you are playing a uh, a 10 year old child to you are playing yeah. a 30 year old man right. or whatever it is. Yeah. Right. And it's like, you know, like I have players at my table who they I mean, they would probably they they let me get away with so much stuff because <laughs> like all the all the campaigns that reach the greatest heights are the ones that break the rules in certain mm. places, like following all the you don't do this, you don't do that will mm-hmm. only ever get you like a solid campaign. In yeah. my opinion, but I mean, like, I just the idea, like, telling your players, like, yeah, you know, you guys are gonna be kids, and as a result, you know, you'll be adventurous kids, but your stats are gonna be low. Like, your mm-hmm. highest stat might be a ten. Like, yeah, don't expect to have a twenty strength. <laughs> yeah, and then you know, half, you know, a third, half the way through the campaign, all of a sudden, you know, it's flash of light, and you hand them each a new blank character sheet and tell mm. them make a level 12 yeah class just Ooh. yeah like yeah even to like present the campaign in a sense of like uh yeah this one might be sh- a little bit shorter like i don't want to like make you guys play like weak little like children for the for a long long time um and then to drop that and be like yeah like we're technically the campaign is changing but <laughs> And I mean, and you aren't lying to them because they still have the child side of the campaign. They can still go Absolutely. go back and do stuff then. <laughs> and I mean, there's that aspect of like, you know, maybe they, maybe, you know, they, they get, they take things that they get and learn in the future and, you know, go back and use that in the past and solve the problem on the large scale in the past. You know, maybe they stop the evil guy who's trying to get in with the king, you know, just through managing to do it as children through items they get and stuff they learn but yeah. or you know maybe they go in the future and stop them when they have the power to physically you know go toe to toe with them okay it's our favorite time it's time to give people some homework let's get it out of the way play ocarina of time <laughs> right uh <laughs> So, I mean, there's that. You probably don't have a 64, but uh, there are definitely different methods by which you could certainly play this game, um, be it a 3DS or I don't really want to condone openly. Just go play it on an emulator, but you could. I'll cut. <laughs> Somebody you, cut that out if you, in post. <laughs> well, here, for all the people in the world who legally own an emulated copy of the game, play it on an emulator, wink, wink. Shame on you, <laughs> but play it. What, well, what else no, do we Mitch, have we're talking homework? about the people who legally own it, which is a, obviously everyone who's going to play it on an emulator are people who legally own yeah. it. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so I, I touched on it before. I think, you know, not only just just going to the wiki and getting like the dungeon maps and stuff, but check out the, the area design in the Metroid prime series, Hmm. you know, not all, it doesn't really differentiate areas into dungeons, but you can sort of see based with the sort of hex grid based areas that connect to each other. And the way it builds that with, you know, verticality here and there and, certain items being useful in certain areas and the way it builds encounters around that. Uh, just, just look at some maps in, from both Zelda and Metroid, and you're going to get a lot of ideas on how to build a solid connected themed dungeon that actually promotes exploration and interest as opposed to what's the door we haven't gone through yet. 
Absolutely. I'm just going to piggyback right off of that because my homework was go and check out all the temple uh, maps and walkthroughs that are readily available on the internet uh, because, I mean, for plenty of D&D players, you could literally play through that dungeon, oh, yeah. that temple, and even they the would have zones. no idea. Like, yeah. Yeah. They, might even, they might actually be easier to translate into a, into a D&D map anyway. Yeah. And they still have good uses of verticality and everything that we just talked about. Yeah, but I think those are fantastic resources ready that with just a, a little bit of work, um, you could make those into fantastic dungeon crawls for your players. Yeah, if you want. And then to give something physical to read, um, there are high, there are like fully sanctioned, well-produced, insanely detailed um, guides to Hyrule or basically not necessarily campaign settings, but something akin to that. Additionally, if you're super jazzed up um, and want to read, there's a manga version of the Ocarina of Time. Um, so you could definitely read that as well. Oh, yeah. The, the Hyrule Historia stuff and everything. Yes, yeah. there it is. Yeah. yeah. Jared knows what you're putting down. Uh, I, I was looking for my copy. Like, I stood up and I was kind of looking <laughs> over where my stuff was, and I did not see it. Jared, if our listeners would like to get in touch with you, ask you what are some of your other favorite games, or ask you specifics about uh, all the Zelda games that you've played, what's the best place for them to get in touch with you at? Uh, definitely Twitter. I am uh, DM Jared, J E R A D. I'm aware it's spelled wrong. Um, <laughs> that's the easiest place to get in touch with me. You know, I, I'll, I, I'll tweet out like random, th random thoughts when I'm playing certain games that some people might find useful occasionally. But you readily engage on Twitter too. Oh, yeah. So people, like, people, uh, ask you questions, send you their thoughts. You will be there to heed the call. Oh yeah. I will, I will respond a hundred percent of the time. Just if you if you try to get me talking on anything that has to do with <laughs> gameplay and story, like that's my bread and butter. Like that's your bat signal. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, again, thank you, Jared, for joining us for this conversation. Thank you, Patreon Dragons, including Jared, uh, for voting uh, for this Council Two campaign episode. Uh, we will be putting up another vote, uh, so make sure you engage in that. But Jared. We hope to have you back on sometime in the near future. We want to thank Jared again for joining us for the discussion of Zelda Ocarina of Time. And thank you to all you Patreon dragons who engaged on the vote uh, for this episode. And hopefully you will engage on the next vote and we will come out with the best of our three options. God of War, Final Fantasy VII, and Turok. I mean, if you listen to the episode, I think you know which one me and jared would like to win but i don't know about i don't know about neil i don't know if you want to you know me <laughs> neil's gonna bury the lead on that one anyway if you would like to get in touch with us maybe you have been inspired by ocarina of time in some way that we weren't able to talk about in this episode and you'd like to fill us in neil where can they reach us at you can always email us at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com send us like Mitch said how you've been adapting Zelda or any other video game you think we should start adding to lists for others to vote on. And of course, if you liked this episode and you see fit or any of the other ones, head over to your podcatcher of choice and leave us a five-star review helps us get in front of more people and inspire them further. You can follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMS block. And you can like our Facebook page. Both of those places will keep you up to date on all things going on in the Dungeon Master's Block. As always, the Dungeon Master's Block is a proud member of the Block Party Podcast Network, where you can check out other shows like Geek Wars, We're So Bad at Adventuring, Detentions and Dragons, and more. Well, that's all we have for you on this episode of the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all their people at the table. I'm DM Neil. Stay classy, blockheads. And I'm Dungeon Master Mitch, reminding you to always keep on Dungeon Mastering.